0: Hello and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined by my co-host Daniel Larson as we navigate through the fog of war and war policy, particularly at a time when the Middle East is now again on the precipice of a regional conflagration. Today is Tuesday, so as of this recording, Israel has yet to engage in a ground invasion in Gaza. Uh, We'll be broadcasting this particular episode on Friday. So forgive us uh, if we are not completely up to date with the headlines. Um, but as of Tuesday, Israel has been pounding the Gaza Strip daily and nightly. And as of now, there has been close to 3,000 deaths, Palestinians in Gaza and some 10,000 wounded, according to Palestinian authorities. Talks are still ongoing to open up some sort of humanitarian corridor to get food and water and medicine into the strip. If it is not a complete humanitarian catastrophe now, it will be a living nightmare soon, whether or not there is a ground invasion. Meanwhile, Biden is expected to visit Israel to meet with Israeli officials and later Arab leaders in the region this along this week. He was expected to show his staunchest support for Israel, but also help to caution restraint uh, and for Israel to follow international rules and laws of war. The Biden administration seems cognizant that the situation could easily slip not only into a humanitarian disaster, but into a wider war if Iran, which is threatened to get involved, does engage in attacks via Hezbollah, if not directly. Dan, there seems to be no good way ahead. Even if Israel does not invade Gaza, it may just pound the strip to rubble to get at Hamas, no matter who's in the way. Iran says it is poised to enter the fray if Israel commits what they say would be war crimes against civilians. The West Bank, meanwhile, is about to blow with uh, spurts of violence there as Israelis engage in door-to-door raids. There's been a number of killings there. What advice would you give the White House right now?
1: Uh, Thanks, Kelly. So my my concern with with the president's visit is that whatever he may say uh, behind closed doors, uh, the the fact that he's going now and and visiting personally and showing up there uh, to, to show solidarity with them Will be interpreted as a green light for them to do whatever they believe to be necessary, and so any any mild caution that he may uh, recommend uh, will be discounted. Uh, and I, and I fear that, that there's not there's not nearly enough emphasis on on caution and restraint uh, in in the remarks that U.S. officials have made, uh, at least publicly. Uh, you you have heard the president say that. They, that Israel should not reoccupy Gaza, but you haven't heard him say that they shouldn't invade. And I, and I think the, you know, the invasion would certainly turn into a bloodbath for the civilian population. Uh, that, that seems all but guaranteed, uh, given how densely populated the area is, how, um, how trapped the people are, there's, no, there's nowhere for them to go, and uh, how bad conditions already were in the, the Gaza Strip uh, before this war started. And of course, those conditions continue to worsen as the, the cutoff of water, food, and power and fuel have uh, greatly exacerbated the terrible conditions there. Uh, water is running out uh, in, in many uh, parts of the, the uh, Gaza Strip, and people are being reduced to to going for whatever they can find, uh, whether it's contaminated water or seawater or, or whatever. Uh, so so as far as recommendations would go, I would I would plead with the president to... To press the Israeli government to recognize that a, a full-on invasion is not only going to be a calamity for the people in Gaza, but that it will indeed be a, a security threat for them. Both in, and and it will be highly costly for them, both in terms of their own losses and in terms of possibly triggering other fronts in the war. Uh, I mean, Hezbollah has at least said that if there is an invasion of Gaza, they will enter. They will enter the war from the north uh i don't know if that's just bluster if that's just cheap talk uh but that's certainly a, a problem they have to keep in mind uh, because hamas has lots and lots of missiles that can reach pretty much all of israel at this point and it would if they enter the war uh, Israeli forces would be hard pressed to to deal with that at the same time that they're fighting a ground war in gaza i i would also have uh People from the Pentagon talking to the IDF about the fact that they haven't done anything like this in a very, very long time. Um, they, there hasn't been a sustained ground operation by the IDF in another outside of Israel's borders since the 2006 Lebanon War, and that did not go very well for those forces. Um, and the, the situation in Gaza, I think, would be even more treacherous than going into Lebanon. So uh, there, there is a, a strong case to be made. Uh, by the president to the Netanyahu government, that it is in their self-interest not to proceed with the maximalist, uh, you know, heavy-handed campaign that they have been talking about waging, and so you know, I understand the the political pressure on them at home to do something big in response to such a massive atrocity, but but that's where I think the U.S. has the benefit of the of our experience of overreacting to 9-11 and and embarking on these decades of pointless and futile war uh, that ultimately doesn't address the the causes of the militancy in question. And you're not going to eradicate militancy uh, among Palestinians by committing new massive crimes against uh, innocent civilians.
0: Yeah, and I mean, just watching the news as closely as I have over the last several days, I I do think that the Biden administration sees that it's in their best interest, and even in Israel's as well as the Palestinians, uh, to caution some restraint and to have uh, a, no ground invasion in, in Gaza, and B, to abide by international law and, and to keep uh, the civilian um, killing and, and maiming and displacement to a minimum. Whether that's going to happen or not, that's up to, to Israel. But I do get the message from the Biden administration that they're looking at this in a very clear-eyed way, and they do not want to see, A, Gaza decimated. They know that there'll be blowback against Americans um, in the region, a blowback against uh, Washington writ large, and they know it would be a, a, an absolute human moral catastrophe if that happened. They don't want to see a wider war in the Middle East and that's why they've actually played down the Irani any any thoughts or any connection to Iran. Uh it, there's been a lot of uh, political interests in Washington that have tried to make that connection between Iran and Hamas. We know that Iran funds Hamas, that is clear, but there has been an extra effort by groups in Washington to make Iran uh, directly responsible t- for the Hamas attacks in 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 Israel, um, the the Biden administration so far has uh, taken a very much softer tone on that. I think they are very much aware that th- there is a, a tripwire here and that we can't afford as a country to get involved in a, a, a greater war in the Middle East. And they don't think that it's in, in Israel's best interest either. Because then Israel would be fighting Hamas in Gaza. It would be fighting Hezbollah in Lebanon. And as I mentioned before, the West Bank is about to blow. And so I think that the Biden administration is going into these visits, whether it be Blinken or uh, Biden and, and U.S. military officials have been there as well. With the goal of not only showing their full throated support for Israel, but also to to, to try to be a restrain uh, a, a, a restraining hand on the situation. But like I said, we have no idea whether Netanyahu's government will listen, and whether they'll just do their own thing. And that that in there lies the problem. Um, you had mentioned what happens afterwards. The United States has had so little influence in what is happening on the ground in Israel, whether it's today, yesterday, five, ten years ago, that it's hard for me to see through the current situation to an actual addressing of the of the root causes here uh, to, to to finally resolve these um, historical uh, issues, uh, these political. Um, the, the thorny political problems that exist that uh, must be resolved, else, in two years, we could be back here on the show talking about the same thing. And what I regret is that the United States has not shown greater leadership and a stronger hand was with Israel over the years. You look back at the Nixon administration all the way up through George H.W. Bush, we did not. Uh, treat Israel with the unconditional, um, unwavering, blind fealty and support that we do now. We saw them as a partner. We saw them, um, if not a treaty ally, but an ally in spirit. And in brotherhood, uh, we shared strategic interests in the region and we treated them as such. But now we have this sort of almost religious fealty to them that has blinded us from our own interests. And I don't think it's helped Israel either because it's gone down um, this precarious road where I just don't know where it's going to lead. And the U S no longer has any seemingly no leverage over Israel or the situation to claw things, things back. And so I just wish we, we, we were just had a firmer, Hand, I mean, we give them three billion dollars a year in weapons. We've built up their military to be the best in the entire Middle East, but yet we have no say in some of these more extreme um, operations and behaviors that they've taken over the last year that have that really have led to the situation we're seeing today.
1: Right. Well, and in terms of leverage, you can't have leverage if you refuse to use it, and that's that's been the, the key problem. We we have we should have leverage. With Israel because of its uh, reliance, or, or its, or its, uh, its acceptance of the aid that we provide to them, the, the diplomatic cover that our government provides to them, uh, and even now we have Biden sent two carrier groups, two carrier groups to the Eastern Mediterranean to act as essentially a shield uh, to to guard against any other uh, actors from from joining in the conflict. At least that's the the justification for it. I'm I'm very concerned about that. That buildup of the U S military presence, that it will be interpreted as, uh, enabling Israeli, uh, uh excesses uh, as a way of trying to protect them and let them get away with whatever they want to do. And that, that ends up uh, potentially drawing us into a, a larger conflict, uh, that, that we can't afford, that we have no business being involved in. And, uh, that of course, which is, is not going to be authorized by any, uh, resolution passed by congress so i i'm i'm very concerned about that but in terms of of trying to rein in israel you, you can't you can't ever rein in a client if you just let the reins sit there and you never you never tug on them and there, there's so there's the it's the lack of political will to do that in washington and then this has been true for pretty much my entire lifetime or at least ever since i've been paying attention to politics the last 30 years uh, no one in washington will ever on those reins, or or try to to lead the Israeli government uh, away from its most destructive impulses, and that has created the conditions that have now led to this conflict. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of idle to wor- wonder what might have happened if Washington had taken uh, a a firmer line with them about settlements and about uh, about the legal occupation. But it's, I mean we're We're stuck now with what uh what has been created by those that those decades of indulgence um, you know if if anybody in the White House were listening, I would say stop stop the indulgence, stop giving them carte blanche uh to do whatever they like and and treat them as you would any other state, any other partner uh that's already guilty of serious crimes and and maybe guilty of more in the the weeks and months to come. Uh, we, we should be seriously contemplating a cut off of all military assistance and rather than talking about our, our unstinting support and I mean I know that's not going to happen but that's, that's the direction we need to be going in uh, if we want to prevent more of these conflicts from breaking out in the future Our guest today is Mark Hanna. He's a senior fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation, where he explores the possibilities and benefits of a US foreign policy less dependent on military might. He is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a political partner at the Truman National Security Project. He's also the creator and host of the foreign policy podcast, None of the Above. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, it's our pleasure. Uh, glad to have you on. And uh, Today, we're talking about the, the new uh, survey of public opinion that the Eurasia Group Foundation does. They, they do one every year. Uh, this year's uh, is a survey of public opinion on U.S. foreign policy uh, uh, regarding the the uh, the relationship between the U.S. and, and a, a fragmenting world order. Right? Mm-hmm. and in that survey, there were some some encouraging evidence of broad support for diplomatic engagement. A large majority, roughly two thirds, favors negotiating with adversaries to avoid conflict. And uh, interestingly, the question even includes uh, if there are human rights abusers. Uh, dictatorships or the home to terrorist groups and three quarters of respondents support continued negotiations with iran this is probably the biggest disconnect between the general public and people in washington Uh, can you talk a bit about those findings and uh, what do you think it will take to turn that broad popular support for engagement into a real change in policy
2: well i hope getting findings like this out into the public uh does that right? I think a large uh, reluctance among some policymakers to negotiate with adversaries is that they're going to be perceived as capitulating or you know not fully embodying American values and uh, as they perform statecraft and, and, and do diplomacy overseas. But the I mean, this kind of just takes the rug out from under that argument, right? That it's somehow a political liability. Um, to negotiate with adversaries, and so a quick caveat is that we we collected this data back in September, so it was you know a few weeks back, um, and it was before the outbreak of violence in Israel between Israel and Hamas. But one could easily imagine interpreting this data and thinking, you know, what like if if the American government uh, or encouraged its Israeli partner to. To, uh to have conversations with with its adversary uh in addition to whatever reprisals it's doing militarily like that wouldn't be seen as weakness right joe biden travels to israel uh and and you know feels a tremendous amount of pressure to 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 articulate steadfast support of israel that doesn't mean that the american public would punish him politically uh if he uh supported Peace talks, right? With whether whether it's Hamas, whether it's Vladimir Putin, you know, I think the American public are intelligent enough to know that you don't negotiate with your allies. You negotiate with your adversaries, um, and I, I think that there, you know, when it comes to achieving certain concrete foreign policy goals, like not allowing uh, Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon, uh, doing the hard work of diplomatic compromise. And negotiation is not seen as something that's politically distasteful. In fact, we find, like, as you mentioned, broad support in the case of the the Iran nuclear negotiations. You know, we didn't use the word Biden in the question text, um, but we asked about uh, the U.S. Uh, the U.S.'s attempts to negotiate, and we found broad bipartisan support for for uh, negotiations with Iran. Right, it was. Something like, uh, you know, uh, seventy among Democrats, it was yeah, seventy something like seventy two percent of Republicans were on board with this, right? Um, Even though seventy seven percent of the overall population and and more than uh, more than that figure for Democrats uh, supported rather than opposed uh, this effort, this diplomatic effort. So I think that's, you know, the idea that somehow. The swing voters and and people who are uh, politically independent are going to uh, punish Biden at at the polls because he's talking or his his administration is talking to Iran. I think it's 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 laughable. Independents are are more likely than Republicans to support these these negotiations.
1: Right. Well, and in connection with the point you're making about uh, Israel and Hamas, uh, you also had a question in the survey about support for the U.S. pressing for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine, and uh, your survey found there was actually majority support for that, uh, for albeit for different reasons, but it did end up being a majority in favor of seeking those negotiations. Uh, can, can you say a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, happily, uh, nearly 60% of Americans uh, think the U.S. should push for a negotiated settlement in the Ukraine war. Uh, we gave three answer options for, you know, we basically said— um we asked whether whether it should uh push for a negotiated settlement and we gave three yes answers yes comma, because of this reason yes because of that reason uh and we gave three no answers right no because of this no because so all the all the different rationales were there laid out in front of survey takers um including the biden administration's uh official i think resp- uh policy which is the U S should respect Ukraine's agency by not seeking to influence it in any way. Right. This is the kind of like nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, and fewer than a third of respondents picked that answer option as, and, and, and that was for one of, um, we asked people to pick their top two reasons, right? So all in all about, you get about 60% want, uh, specifically 58% want the U S to push for a negotiated end to the war, uh, and 42 percent as a minority uh, think the U.S. should not uh, be pressuring or pushing for this this negotiated outcome. And the primary reason uh, that that I mentioned the different rationales were baked into the answers. The most popular answer option. Uh, was that the war has killed or injured an estimated 500,000 people, and it just needs to stop, right? Like, it's it's the carnage of the war that Americans, I think, are responding to. Um, but a significant amount also thinks that uh, neither side is capable of winning an all-out military victory. And then uh, there's uh, some concern that the U.S. does not have the industrial capacity to protect itself uh, while supplying Ukrainian the Ukrainian war effort that was more pronounced. We had separate questions about the production of munitions and, and the fear that we are, uh, you know, a fear over dwindling stockpiles was a lot more pronounced with Republicans and independents than with Democrats. Um, but we did find, uh, that that was driving some of, of, of the respondents to want, want to push for a negotiated settlement as well.
1: And uh, another interesting finding concerned, uh, U S military presence in Europe, and also uh, in Asia, you asked questions about both, and it found subs- you found substantial support for reducing or even ending the U.S. military presence in Europe. Uh, that that sentiment was strongest, I believe, among Republicans. Uh, what what were the partisan differences on that question and on the question on Asia?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. So I want to be careful before I kind of. Uh examine the data around, you know, support or reduce uh, or increase rather, or reduce troop presence in Europe um, because a, a significant number of respondents uh, selected the status quo. Right. And I think when you're doing surveys, if you, if you offer a status quo answer option and people don't have a tremendous amount of knowledge or don't have a very strong opinion, there might be a, a tendency to to select that. So, you know, people kind of defer to, you know, what what the government is doing, then, then, um, you know, if I don't have a strong opinion, I, I'm going to defer to that. That said, um, around troop posture in Europe, uh, a tiny percent, it was about 8% wanted to increase uh, American troop presence in Europe to better defend European allies. Uh, I think it was nearly uh, eight times as many want to either reduce or uh mostly withdraw americans uh america's true presence in europe um yes that is more pronounced among republicans than democrats um and and I, again the caveat is reiterated that a, a, like the plur, i think the plurality wanted to maintain but of people who have a have a position and want to see a change many more want the u.s to reduce its troop presence to enable and empower its European allies to take more responsibility for European security. Um, and in Asia, it's the same. It's, uh, we, we didn't ask about troop presence, but we asked about access to bases, right? And we find that many more people want to reduce America's access to bases in Europe, uh, excuse me, in Asia in response to China's growing regional and, and global influence than want to increase access to bases, um, so, and and that was more driven, I think, by Democrats. So we do, we are starting to see this partisan divide over, over areas of the world that receive, that are getting prioritized, right? I think Republicans are a little bit more accommodating of uh, Russia's security interests and hawkish on China. Democrats are more accommodating of China's regional and, and international ambitions, right? Want to give China some more elbow room, but are more hawkish on Russia Um, and so this idea that politics stops at the water's edge, you know, which is kind of anachronistic anyway, it was a a product of the geopolitical realities of the dawn of the cold war, uh, has become, uh, uh, you know, if there were any, if there was any doubt, uh, you know, that doubt should be wiped away. This is, we no longer have politics that stops at the water's edge. Um, and this isn't just about, uh, Republicans, Concerned about immigration and Democrats concerned about climate change, right? These kind of predictable responses that we saw in our data about perceived threats. This is also about what countries are our friends, what countries are our enemies, um, and and how much of a threat these peer competitors, to use that phrase, are.
0: Thank you for coming on the show, Mark. It's great to to hear you and uh, see you. I was wondering, you know, when you're doing these polls and you're seeing the results, the way uh, they shake out, and I'm, I'm looking specifically at the numbers regarding Iran, uh, talking to Iran and the Iran nuclear deal, as well as what we're seeing in terms of your response uh, uh, to the question of, of negotiated settlement in Ukraine. It seems to me that the American people uh, get nuance and they are not as persuaded by the black and white arguments that seem to dominate Washington. I, I, I've i been working in this town for many years, uh, particularly, particularly around the JCPOA issue. And it's a no-go area. Not even Democrats are talking about getting back into the JCPOA. Uh, The whole idea of talking to Iran and getting back to the table on that nuclear deal seems to be just uh, a dead end at this point in the Biden administration. On Ukraine, Democrats do not want to talk about negotiated settlement on Ukraine. Uh, This is uh, an area in which Republicans have been more vocal But it does seem hyper politicized, but yet in the poll, it does seem that Americans understand the value of talking and negotiating, and they're willing uh, to ascribe uh, to that, whether it be Iran or Vladimir Putin. What do you make of this divide between the politics of these issues in Washington and what American people are taking away from these debates and how they're feeling about them uh, when they're asked in polls such as yours.
2: Yeah, I think there are a couple of things happening, right? There, there, is, there does seem to be a, a misreading of the public among policymakers, as well as just a difference of worldview that might be informed by academic expertise that might be informed by, you know, uh, the sort of imperatives of, uh, the pursuing a foreign policy or national security career. Um, but Americans generally are, you know, this is, uh, you mentioned, Daniel mentioned, this is the sixth year of us doing this national survey. And consistently we find Americans who are support, probably more supportive than most would expect of diplomatic engagement and probably a lot less supportive than m- many would expect on military engagement, right? So there's kind of support for soft power or the support for diplomacy, and and kind of an attentiveness to the ways in which uh, military power can backfire when misapplied, right? I think that it shows that there's a real savvy among the public, um, and we also find, you know, that, that public public views of the world line up fairly closely with that of academic experts and, and international relations scholars that are working in universities. Um, people in our world that work in, in D.C. or New York and think tanks and, and advocacy groups um, who make their, make, make their living uh, analyzing threats and, and proposing policy responses have a different set of incentives. They have a different kind of professional culture. Um, I don't want to sort of exaggerate or, or give too much to, um, you know, this kind of well-worn topic of kind of the divide between foreign, the foreign policy establishment and the general public, because it it's there for sure. But I think it can be, you know, people can get kind of conspiratorial about that, right? Like against the deep state, but the if the foreign policy leadership of this country cares about uh, it's the, the sort of perceived legitimacy among the public then i think there is an interest in engaging uh more forcefully more energetically with public opinion right and and with what the public's preferences and views and attitudes are for a long time there's been very little incentive to do that because foreign, as as a lot of people know and listeners of your podcast Americans don't prioritize foreign policy and national security at election time so there's less political incentive to really engage them in debate Part of the reason the Eurasia Group Foundation exists, and the work of our project, the Independent America Program here at EGF, is to not just get Americans to care more about foreign policy and get geo- complicated geopolitical topics kind of in- intelligible and, and 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 compelling for a general audience, but also to to get leaders of uh, and, and and people in positions of power who are making foreign policy. Um, for them to see that, that, uh, the public is legible, right. The, the public preferences are, uh, informed, uh, are, uh, understandable and, and should be grappled with because in a democracy it's, you know, it's predicated on the will of the governed. Let's also say this though, uh, you know, public opinion can be famously fickle, right. And so we could, you know, the Chicago council had a, had a survey, where they collected data also a couple weeks before the outbreak of violence in Israel. And it showed a, a significant majority of Americans wanting to negotiate with Hamas specifically. They had Hamas in the question text. And, um, you know, it would be interesting to see if they ran that again last week after these horrific attacks, whether that would be the case. Um, so I think what you're also seeing, it's not just that... the Uh, policymakers and and political campaigns are misreading the general public. They're also probably anticipating that if if Donald Trump is the nominee and he makes Iran negotiations his hobby horse and and takes, you know, thwack after thwack at the Biden administration for negotiating with Iran, maybe these numbers would soften. But we've found support for negotiations with Iran consistently uh, high levels over the past several years. So it is You know, I I don't, all that is to say uh, it's not simply that the foreign policy establishment is out of touch or it's not um, reading the numbers we're reading. It's also that they might have uh, understandable sort of predictions about how some of these topics might change uh, and how public opinion might shift as the kind of uh, various sort of spectrum aspects of this kind of 2024 campaign ramp up.
0: So, Mark, I mean, you mentioned uh, that it's a two-way street and uh, the Eurasia Foundation does want to use these polls to better inform Congress and Capitol Hill official Washington. What are some of the things that your group is doing to, I guess, educate members of Congress, people on the Hill, about what Americans are actually thinking about these critical issues.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we do is come on podcasts like this one, um, but we do, you know, we're not a we're not a policy advocacy organization, so we do get in front of, of members of Congress. I just yesterday was talking to Congressman uh, Jim Himes, who's the ranking member on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, and he came through the council on foreign relations. I, I attended this thing. I kind of buttonholed him, and at the end of the event, and was talking to him and his, uh, you know, about some of our findings and, and the disconnect. Because there's a lot of talk of, of bipartisanship in, in Washington, and it's it's a nice aspiration um, for sure. Uh, but then we were kind of grappling together along with some of the partisan divides that we see in our findings, right? And how do how does then Congress and the work on the intelligence committee that so relies on, you know, human intelligence, signals intelligence, uh, how, and, and, you know, anticipating the reactions and responses of foreign governments, how do you uh, uh, try to create a, an, uh, uh, an environment of predictability or transparency? And, and, and how do you anticipate the responses of foreign governments when they might think that a change in presidential leadership or a change in partisan leadership within the U S means a windfall for, or a desperation for their interests. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, we do get in front of lawmakers from time to time. We, we are a public education organization. So we, we, you know, share our, our findings with the media and, and and expect and hope that they get read, uh, by lawmakers, put them into op-eds and and have conversations like this
1: one. Very good. And I'm afraid we're we're out of time for today, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Once again, Mark Hanna, Eurasia Group Foundation, and the name of the report is Order and Disorder, Views of U.S. Foreign Policy in a Fragmented World. Uh, You can find it online uh, at their website.
2: Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Kelly. It's great talking with you both.
1: Great talking with you.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.